Good morning. Well, it's good to be with you all. Um, Mark, uh, thank you for that introduction. It is always um, a pleasure to come here. Uh, I've gotten to preach at a lot of different churches, and you can always tell when a church actually um, wants you to open up the scriptures for them, like they, they have come to actually sit beneath the Word of God and are okay if the Word of God challenges them. And so uh, I'm really appreciative for, I look forward every week to that I get to preach here for that reason. So uh, it's mutually encouraging. Um, if you have your Bible, please flip to Acts 1. Yes, we have a new baby. Uh, she's about four weeks and a couple of days old. Um, the brothers love her a lot and are taking out their frustration at her existence on us, though. So that's good, you know. So they seem to, like, know somewhere that they are getting less time with mom and dad. But at this point, they, uh, they still love Posey. They don't blame her for it. So that's good. They're also probably watching right now. Murray, George, Wendell, love you guys. All right. <laughs> and Posey, I love you, too, even if you can't hear me. Okay. All right. So... Uh, I, uh, as Mark mentioned, I'm going to be preaching once a month for this year, and I'm, I'm going to run kind of my own series uh, parallel to Mark's, and I'm going to be doing mine on the book of Acts. I know that's going to be a little weird to have kind of this series that's running throughout the year, but Acts is such a vivid book that I hope it will stand out and we'll be able to remember it and put it together. Uh, I'm calling the series Family History. Uh, and I'm calling it that because, you know, when you're growing up, your family has a lot of stories that it tells about itself, that it tells about you. And those stories tell you who you are, where you're going, what you're doing. Uh, and maybe you've even mentioned this before, but all the stories about me as a small child were really terrible. I was an awful kid. And part of the reason that my parents told us, my mom would see someone misbehaving in the grocery store, like a, a parent beyond their wit's end as the kid is throwing a tantrum. And my mom viewed it as her ministry to go up and tell them about how terrible I was and then be like, look, he's okay now. It's possible. Um, so, you know, the family stories they tell about you, Andrew used to be terrible, and due to the willpower of my parents, they beat me. You know, they won. Uh, it says something about who you are, what your family is, what your family's culture is, the stories that get told a lot. Even the negative, you know, even the tragic stories have a way of informing who you are, where you're going, what you're doing. Uh, a lot of people's story is defined by observing their family and saying, I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to accept those stories. I'm going to create my, my own. So I felt like this was a good moment kind of in history to ask, what is the church's family history? What's our family history? Who are we? Where are we going? What are we like? What do we do? And so the book of Acts is the family history of the church. It's written by Luke. It's the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he saw those books as, as pairs, uh, and that you're going to flow straight through them. So I will frequently refer back to the Gospel of Luke and what he's saying. So let's jump in. Uh, even though in your bulletin it says chapter 1, 1 through 26, I'm actually only doing 1 through 11, breathe, uh, 1 through 14, sorry. Breathe, big sigh of relief. Um, yeah, anyway, let me uh, just read this opening for you. I'm just going to read through 1 through 11 here to begin with, and then we'll go from there. Here we go. This is the Word of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days 
and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of, to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Uh, so much in the world can feel in flux. Um, Things can feel heavy, and yet we know that you do not change, that you are as in control as much as you were yesterday as you are today, and that you love us. The cross testifies that you are for your people, that you are invested, that you do not give up on us, you do not forget about us, but you have your skin in the game. You died for us. With that as our background, knowing what you have done for us, may we be receptive to the word you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I saw the movie Karate Kid when I was pretty young, and I'm a little embarrassed by how much influence the movie Karate Kid had over my life. Uh, I immediately asked my parents to sign me up for karate, did karate for a while. I have a pretty epic picture, very 90s picture of like little Andrew like this and like a faded out version of myself over. And I keep it on my desk at school as a joke for my students to enjoy. I had a major crush on the female lead. I probably like internalized everything that that movie had to teach me about romance, which was probably not great. But the reason I think that the movie Karate Kid uh, has had such, if you haven't seen it, it is amazing. You should watch it. All right. Uh, the reason I think it's had such great staying power is it's fundamentally about this profound relationship between a young man and his mentor. Uh, and if you don't know the story, you know, Karate Kid's about a young kid, Daniel LaRusso, who travels out to California. He's trying to fit in, but he's immediately bullied. And these, this is an 80s movie, so when he's bullied, he's like bullied, bullied. Uh, they're not messing around. And he realizes that he's become the target of this entire karate dojo called Cobra Kai, which they just made a show about. And the Cobra Kai slogan is very simple. It's strike first, strike hard, no mercy. And uh, the sensei of this Cobra Kai, Kreese, he's like this ex-military, very ripped guy who says things like this. We do not train to be merciful. Mercy is for the weak. Here on the street in competition, a man confronts you. He's the enemy, and enemies deserve no mercy. So you get the idea. The world is full of hammers and nails to Kreese. And as uh, Frederick Nietzsche, the philosopher, might say, the world is the will to power and nothing else, nothing besides. And you yourselves are also this will to power and nothing besides. Well, uh, LaRusso in the story gets lucky because his neighbor is Mr. Miyagi. He's a gentleman from Okinawa who also happens to be really good at karate. 
and he decides to train LaRusso, and many of you know the story from this point. But the thing, part of the joy of watching the movie is Mr. Miyagi's training methodology for Daniel, young Daniel LaRusso is are really counterintuitive. And LaRusso comes in like, how do I punch? How do I kick? You know, how do I make people bleed? And Mr. Miyagi has him wax his cars and paint his fence and clean the decks. And I'm not going to ruin it for you how this is training him for karate, but what LaRusso doesn't realize is that uh, Mr. Miyagi is not just training him to become the next bully, right? That's not his goal. I want you to be strong so then you can beat up on people. That's not the point. He trains him how to defend himself, sure, but he also trains him how to navigate the world in a totally different way. He, LaRusso begins to realize that he's not just learning how to beat up his bullies, he's learning how to respect himself, he's learning how to move about the world with competence, he's learning how to be all right whether he wins or loses, right? It's powerful to watch this relationship because deep down, I think everyone wants this to be true. We do not want to live in a world where brute power wins. Uh, we want to believe that love matters, that patience matters, that self-sacrifice matters, that all those things are true and good and actually powerful. And as Christians, on paper, we do believe those things. But I think we can often make the same mistake that LaRusso makes at the beginning of this movie. We perceive threats and we think the way to strike back is power. Uh, God doesn't protect us, money does, education does, knowing the right people, having the right resume. These things are the things that will protect us. I think a lot of Christians feel like Christianity is like we're wasting time waxing cars and painting fences when we should be learning how to punch. Want to bring in the kingdom of God, we say, get power and make it happen. Well, uh, and the scariest thing I think is, even when we believe the end goal is the kingdom of God, this kingdom of righteousness and peace, it's really easy to believe that the road to get there is the same road as everywhere else, the road of worldly power. As Christians, here's the kicker, and this is what Acts is all about. I'm not making this up. This is what Acts is all about. It's not just that our goal is different, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but our methodology is different. It's not just that the goal is different, but the way is different. So our passage today is just about this shift. It's kind of a mission statement. Acts is about the establishment of this kingdom, the kingdom of God. How's it going to be established? Are there going to be guys riding in with swords making it happen? Nope. So our thesis is simple. Worldly power has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. So it's a simple point. It's one thing, and I, but I want to hit it hard so that you can watch it kind of be extrapolated throughout the rest of Acts. So we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the way of power, and we're going to look at the way of the Spirit. Well, before our main narrative, and before we jump into that, I, I want to look at uh, a couple of things Luke has for us as setup. Okay, so if you look at Acts 1, if you're looking at verse 3, first, underneath all this in Acts is Jesus comes back as a resurrected man. Like, Luke actually thinks that happened. The entirety of scriptures actually think this happened. And it's really important. You can't overstate it. Jesus was resurrected. Uh, the resurrection has no value apart from being true, which is why Luke, uh, Luke says in like verse 3, to them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. He's saying like this really happened. There are a lot of proofs of this. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
Paul goes on to say at some point, he says, you know, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. There's just no point apart of doing this, of coming here and being together if we don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, the great broadcaster Larry King passed away yesterday, and um, he had actually said at one point that he wanted his body to be frozen because he felt like it was really ridiculous, but in his words, other people have no hope. That it was his only hope was to have his body frozen. Uh, I would disagree with him. I think our only hope is the resurrection of Christ. Uh, in terms of the historicity of the resurrection, there are actually some really good arguments for it. The best I've, I've read comes from N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God. I would invite you to, to look into that, read it, maybe let me know how that goes if you do it. If you've never really gone into the historical proofs for the resurrection, it's worth your time. Bother Mark about it. All right. Secondly, so we have the resurrection. That undergirds all of this. The second thing is Jesus says, it says this, right, that he's speaking about the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus does after he's resurrected. He spends these 40 days wandering around. And in Luke 24, we get this image of what that meant, what that looked like. And in Luke 24, Jesus says this is what the kingdom's about, the repentance and forgiveness of sins proclaimed to all the nations. So the kingdom of God is repenting from sin and then also being forgiven in the name of Jesus. That's really important. Log that away for the future. So Luke establishes for us there's a resurrection, there's a kingdom of God going forth that's not defined by anything except for a proclamation of God's name, repentance, and forgiveness. And the last thing he does is Jesus gives them this command. He says, listen, I, I'm about to leave you, but there's something coming. The Holy Spirit. You have this mission, but you also have an ally that's going to guide you through this. So with that setup that Luke wants us to take with us in the book of Acts, we're going to look at the, the way of power and the way of the Spirit. So if we look at verse 6, let's look first at the way of power. And it's short, but we have this one very telling question from the disciples. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, notice, Luke has already said, Jesus went around talking about the kingdom of God. He did not go around talking about the kingdom of Israel. There seems to be a distinction. What Jesus is talking about and what the disciples are talking about are still different things. They are still talking about political power. They're still talking about Israel going up to the throne. And what's amazing is, during They've watched the entirety of Jesus' ministry play out, and they still haven't internalized the meaning of the cross. They still think that, like, Rome is their biggest problem, that the external enemy is their biggest problem. And I think they're swept up by this image, and, I mean, it's pretty epic. Imagine, like, if someone, if someone brought in the Gospels as, like, a movie script. I think the producer would be like, it's pretty great. But when Jesus is resurrected, he should totally come back and destroy everyone, right? That is epic. Like, third day, Jesus comes. He's got his soldiers. Oh, my gosh. Resurrected Jesus, wiping everyone out. Big fan. Change that ending. It'll sell, right? Um, so, and I think the disciples are still kind of swept up by this. Like, the whole time, they're like, are you going to do it now? What about now? Are we doing it now? Can we do it now? I saw that you can resurrect people from the dead. Pretty cool power, huh? Let's do it now. Oh, you can make food, you know, just magically... We're going to be the greatest army ever. Can we do it now, please? Right? They're still asking this question. But the cross 
is not just a place where Jesus died for our sins. It is also the place where he reveals the way of the kingdom and the way forward. It's not an aberration. It's not just this one. It is the way is the cross. For whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever hates his life will gain it. The cross is a renunciation of earthly success, of the powerful world around us. It's saying that the greatest successes are not the things that make the front page of the newspaper. The greatest successes are long-lasting ministry at soup kitchens, right? The greatest successes are like devotion to the homeless. There are adoptions. There are therapists who fight for mental health. There are people who set up relationships with people that don't have to. There are people who look out for younger people when they're alone and lonely and those kinds of things. There are people who visit people who are can't, you know, home-ridden, can't leave. There are all these places where the kingdom of God is on the move that will never make the news. They'll never show up anywhere, right? And that's the way of the cross. It's the upside-down kingdom. It's not from the top down. It's from the bottom up. And this is totally consistent with Jesus' life, right? He shows up as a man, and he's born in a stable. And the only people he tells, like, it's almost like the gospel, like, we should probably tell someone, you know, that God is here. Uh, we, I guess we could tell the big dogs, but how about these shepherds that people basically hate and nobody cares about? I mean, think about that. Like the witnesses, the testimony that you're going to have to trust when you're reading the Gospels is like, okay, so God came to, that's, that's hard to swallow. Who am I going to have to believe? What are my testimonies going to be like? Oh, these shepherds, you know? It's amazing how much consistently Jesus denies power and consistently Jesus goes the route of weakness and still it's so entrenched in our everything that power is the way to success that the disciples still can't hear this message. Some of the Im images honestly that scared me the most from the January 6th attack on the Capitol was the way the cross was used. And the people who connected the cross with that action simply need to repent because the cross is not a tool for political power. It's not like, yeah, Jesus died, but it's business as usual. This is how the world works. Christians can't be the ones screaming, will to power. The cross is not a result. It's a way. It's a way, right? I'm going to shoot straight with you. If the news and social media, if your inputs make you forget this, you should give it up. Seriously. I, I'm, I'm doing this myself, actually. Uh, so, like, the week of January 6th, which, you know, ter terrible in so many ways. I got a book in the mail called Stop Reading the News. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and you know what was crazy is I was thinking about the book kind of challenges you to, like, give up the news for 30 days. And I thought about it and thought, I can't do that, and realized I, I, I think it might be easier for me to give up reading the scriptures than reading the news which was heartbreaking, right? I, I feel like it's so important. I know what's going on. I have voices I'm listening to. If you find that, like, Twitter, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, local radio, whatever, make you think about politics before the kingdom of God, if you find yourself giving in to thinking about the way is power instead of underneath, maybe fast for a while. We can do it together. It's going to be hard. I haven't started yet. I'm going to. And now I've said it publicly, so now I have to. Um, <laughs> So if you believe in your heart that the way forward is power, I think we need to ask ourselves, what's, what's our inputs? What's coming in? Uh, because we are Christians. We're the way of the cross. 
That's the way it goes. To show you how off base I think we are, uh, a few years back there was a controversy surrounding a, a Christian college. This was back when it felt like everyone was talking about ISIS and really afraid of that. And uh, a president of a Christian college said something to the effect of, if someone, if a terrorist ever comes on our campus, they're in for it because all our students are packing heat. That is so backwards from what the early church, this was literally the question of the early church when they were being persecuted by Rome. When the early church, when the Christians are being persecuted by Rome, the dominant question was, should we hide or should we just go let them kill us? Those were the two questions. They were like, we have two options here basically is, do we hide to let the gospel go forward or do we just trust God so much that it's gonna be a better testimony if we go out and let ourselves be killed? Those were the questions. That's, I'm not saying there's a right or wrong. I, it's just that's where their, their head was at. Their head was at the way of the cross. And I think we've lost sight of that. And Jesus rebukes them. So we, the, the way of power, we've, we've talked about briefly. Now let's look at the way of the spirit. In 7 through 8, Jesus says, he says to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He's like, firstly, when all this stuff is going to go down, when God is fully enthroned on the king and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, you, you don't know. You don't know when that's going to happen. And secondly, and here's a little bit of a rebuke, I think, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Here's, I think, what he's saying. He's like, oh, you want power? You know what the world has tried forever? The world has tried power forever. There's always an Alexander the Great, right? There's always some new conqueror or ruler or someone with nuclear weapons who's really terrifying. People have been trying power forever. It has not brought anyone closer to God. In fact, it's maybe even separated them more from God. Has that, has that solved our problems? Can you think of a nation that has gained tons of power and that solved your problems? And he's saying you'll receive power when the Spirit there's going to be a different way for you. And the whole book of Acts is about this. It's about, we're going to watch people be martyred. We're going to watch people serve in ways that are not glorious. Then we're going to watch people get imprisoned. I mean, heroic stories in Acts frequently involve 11 out of the 12 disciples are going to die. That feels like a failed mission, doesn't it? We're going to start a mission and basically all of you are going to suffer incredible amounts, be imprisoned, martyred. 11 out of 12 of you are going to die. The last one's going to be exiled. That doesn't sound like a recipe for like, this thing is going to catch on, you know. And in 270, 280 years after the death of Jesus, Christianity is a dominant world religion. Something happened. It might just be the Holy Spirit. But, uh, so when we look at this passage, then we see the disciples see this. Jesus ascends. When he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And if you jump down to 12, the disciples' message, what they do is, then they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. 
They hear it. They go back. They pray. They wait for the Spirit. This is us. This is what we do. So much of the Christian life, I think, is like you are, you are spirit detectives. Like your job is to pay attention to how the spirit is moving in people and in the community around you and follow it and do what it does, right? We, we have relationships with people and it's like, man, that person believes there's no God, but look at the way they self-sacrificially serve their community. I, I think that's the spirit moving in them, right? I think the spirit is moving here and here, and you come alongside in those places, and that's where we get to work. We watch and we wait for the spirit. Uh, just, I've issued this challenge before, but just pray for an opportunity to talk about Jesus this week with someone. And it's amazing how frequently, God loves to answer that one. The spirit is moving all around you. That's our job is to pray, to lock in, to to work with the spirit to bring around this kingdom. This kingdom that's not by power or violence, it's by a call to repentance, a call of repentance, a call to Jesus' name. I have a, a friend, a good friend of mine, uh, who was a neighbor for a while, and he was a prominent doctor, and a really humble guy, and is like, I kind of pieced together how important he was from the side. He was constantly going to speak at these big conferences, and you just wouldn't know at all based on the way he lived. And one day, I uh, wanted to hang out with him, and he was like, I'm pretty busy, but do you mind running errands with me? I'm like, sure. Well, one of the errands he ran was every week, apparently, he went to the library, picked up books, and brought them to the house of an, a gentleman with MS who couldn't go anywhere and had a full-time nursing staff. And the way my doctor friend uh, started doing that was he just went to the library and saw we need help delivering books to shut-ins and just said yes and started doing it. And I would have never known that he had done that had I not jumped in the car with him on Monday and I thought like that, that is the spirit right there, right? He has so much, he has so much success on a worldly level that he could be receiving all this praise for. And I wonder if the best thing he does is that visit every week with that gentleman who had MS uh, bringing him books, right? The way the spirit is, is upside down. Uh, there's a, I was reading a film review. This is my last movie reference for this. I know, two in one sermon. It's too much. Uh, there's, a, there's a movie coming out based on a true story. And it's called Our Friend. And the, the true story is there was a journalist whose wife got terminal cancer. And he had two daughters, and he's trying to run his life. And it's just he cannot, he can't do what's required to keep his family running together. And, his best friend just says, hey, he's single, and uh, he just says, I'll just move in with you until, until this all goes down. And he does, and helps keep the family together. And this film critic said about the best friend moving in, I don't understand why anyone would do that. I just don't get the motivation. Why would someone give up so much to help people like that? I don't, I don't understand. And I feel like that's what we as Christians should be doing. We should be throwing wrenches into the power narrative. Like people should look at Christianity and go, I don't know why you would do that. For people who believe that underneath everything is just a power grab and a power struggle and we're just jockeying for position and that's all there is and there is no true goodness or love or all this, the gospel is 
There was this one totally pure, true, unmanipulative, free gift of grace from God, and it echoes throughout all of history, and an entire group of people follow after it. And that's what we do. We believe that there was a pure act of love extended towards us, and because of that, we can do the same thing. We should throw a wrench in the power narrative. We should confuse people. Why would you do that? Why would you dedicate that much time to serving other people instead of going on and making lots of money? Why would you give up that promotion to spend more time with these people? Why would you serve here? Why would you do a Bible study with only two people in it? What glory is that bringing? You know what I mean? We should be throwing a wrench in that narrative over and over. When people get in the car with us and we go places, they should be like, who are you? What? Why are you doing this? John Stott says this, the kingdom of God is his rule set up in the lives of his people by the Holy Spirit. It is spread by witnesses, not by soldiers. Through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war. And by the work of the Spirit, not by the force of arms, political intrigue, or revolutionary violence. He said that like 10 years ago. Here's the good news. That can sound really overwhelming, but a couple of things. One, Jesus says, here comes the Spirit. You're right. You actually can't do it. I can't do it. I'm incapable of doing it. But Jesus promises that we have the Spirit. He's like, go wait. The Spirit is coming. The Spirit that is going to direct you towards these things. It's going to tug at your heart that you are not going to have the courage or the power to do what's required. Exactly. That's the whole thing with Christianity. You don't have it. Congratulations. It's kind of freeing. You can't do it. Woo! But the Spirit can, right? We depend on the Spirit. That's how we get there. And the second thing that's encouraging is, I skip this verse and come back to it. So Jesus ascends and the disciples, in verse 10, they're like staring up like, you know, is, is he going to come back? Was this, this was one, a really weird experience, and two, is this just it? Was that, you know, is that it? And these angels appear and say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the first thing to be encouraged is you, you have the spirit if you're in Christ. The second thing is he's coming back. It's written from cover to cover. Jesus is going to return. The upside down kingdom is going to be the kingdom. It's true. So I, I want to encourage you a couple of ways. Some of you have been doing something like that. You've been serving for a long time in a way that's maybe not seen uh, and maybe doesn't feel like it's always worth it. Maybe it's really hard. I know this year has been incredibly hard to do anything relational. What I'd like to say is that the Father sees you. He loves you. He is giving you the tools to do those things. Keep doing it. You're doing the work of the kingdom. And the challenge would be, for those of us, and I fall into this all the time, who think that power is the way, the challenge is to look to the cross. The challenge is to say the cross is not just an end for us, it is the way forward. And to begin to kind of marinate and look for the Spirit, the way the Spirit is moving, the same Spirit that points us to the Jesus who came for us, not as this ruler who conquered. Thank God he didn't come as a ruler who conquered. When the disciples are like, we wish you came as a ruler who conquered, he could have been like, you know, if I came as a ruler who conquered, I'd be conquering you, right? You would not be spared. Thank God that he came to us, not in that way, but he came to us as a baby in a manger. He came to us where the only witnesses were shepherds 
He came to us in the night as he meets with Nicodemus, wherever we are in our sins and our failures, he is not above it, coming to find and reach out and be with us in every moment of every day. His creation, his word reaches out to meet with us. You are never so far gone that Jesus is not willing to humble himself to get to where you are. And that, that's true. That's awesome. So let's live out this coming year as believers who believe in the cross, not just an end, but it's the way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are good. We are recipients of such unbelievable grace and humility from you that it is overwhelming and it is easy to forget. We do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve your mercy. We are slow to understand. We are slow to hear. We can sit every week in the pews and hear the same story and still believe that the way of the world is right, that there is a will to power and nothing else. Father, rend our hearts. Forgive us when we feel that way and show us the truth. Show us who you are. Help us to follow through the Spirit and serve and reveal the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen.